Hi, everyone. Um, as uh, we did last week, we've got three Bible readings this week. Um, you'll be able to follow them on the screen behind me, but if you're uh, following in your own Bibles, um, we're starting in Job chapter 8, then we're jumping over to Job chapter 20 and Job chapter 22. We're just reading the response of um, some of Job's friends that were sitting with him and listening to his uh, words. So Job chapter 8, verses 1 to 6. This is Bildad speaking. Then Bildad the Shuite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Jumping over to Job chapter 20. This is Zophar speaking. Then Zophar the Namathite replied, my troubled thoughts prompt me to answer because I am greatly disturbed. I hear a rebuke that dishonours me and my understanding inspires me to reply. Surely you know how it has been from of old, ever since mankind was placed on the earth, that the mirth of the wicked is brief, the joy of the godless lasts but a moment. Though the pride of the godless person reaches to the heavens and his head touches the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? Like a dream he flies away, no more to be found, banished like a vision of the night. And Job chapter 22, this is Eliphaz. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Can a man be of benefit to God? Can even a wise person benefit him? What pleasure would it give the Almighty if you were righteous? What would he gain if your ways were blameless? Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary and you withheld food from the hungry. Though you were a powerful man, owning land, an honoured man, living on it. And you sent widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. Well, good evening, everyone. An inspiring and encouraging warm message that you've just received from those lovely readings. Um, 
it, it is. It's a, it's it's the the clothing is a reminder that we're sitting with Job in the midst of his suffering, his grieving, his mourning. Uh, this is not light reading. That you go home. Oh, this is exciting, isn't it? Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at Job's suffering and and the initial responses to it in chapter one and two. Job expressed an extraordinary trust and ongoing praise of God, despite his life being turned from perfect into chaos. Last week, as Steve said, we focused on the need for integrity, for for truth about how we feel as we suffer, and hopefully that we're praising God at the same time in the midst of that suffering. We also learn of just how careful we need to be as we talk about suffering, or whether we're the ones suffering or whether we're trying to comfort somebody who is. Can I encourage all of us that this same sensitivity is needed as we talk to one another about Job after the service at home groups and so on? Uh, These are complicated and for many people very, very painful topics. They're real. So be aware that your listening and your responses are incredibly important. Uh, An extra dose of patience and grace can go a long way to actually showing understanding and being helpful. Um, This week, uh, we're going to dip into chapters 8 to 25. We've just heard a reading from each of the three friends. Uh, and, And what goes on in these chapters is the remainder of the conversation between Job and these three important men. Uh, next week, Job speaks without any interruptions. There's no there's no comments or response to what he says. So it has a little bit of a different feel to this, this dialogue that's going on in these chapters. Now tonight, obviously, we don't have the time to, to go through in detail. We only have time to point out some landmarks, the, the general direction things are going. And, and the goal of that, yes, it's a sermon. We want you to be thinking about things. But in some ways, this is preparation for you to go home and to be able to read the rest of it. When I read Bildad, what am I supposed to be thinking? If I hear Zophar say that, what's that supposed to do in me? Uh, and so hopefully this is just helpful laying out a, a map, a roadmap that you can go back and fill in the gaps as you keep reading uh, the remaining chapters in the book. Uh, if you are not all, already using the reading guide, uh, we put one in the start of the handbook. Um, grab one of those tonight, get into it, uh, and start reading the whole of the book of Job. If you if you already have started and you're just like, oh, man, they just keep saying the same thing over and over. I'm getting really depressed by this. Hang in there. It's worth it. Uh, I'm going to pray for us and invite you to join with me. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the book of Job. It's not... Uh, It's not all delightful and happy, uh, and yet it's part of your word to us. And so we want to understand what you're saying to us. Uh, We recognize it reveals to us truths about you, truths about ourselves and others and how we're supposed to interact. And so we pray tonight, again, as we spend some time uh, thinking about this conversation that takes place between these men, uh, that you'd help us to understand what you're saying to us through it, that you would enable us to recognise the things that we need to change, to work on, uh, and that by your grace you'd enable us to respond rightly in repentance and faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are watching a documentary. A brilliant interviewer like Andrew Denton or Arne Doe is sitting down with Job and each of his friends asking them questions. Rather than going behind the scenes as we did in chapters 1 and 2 up into the heavens, we now have an opportunity to to get down on earth with Eliphaz and hear him explain why he says what he says. 
Now, I have no doubts at all that he would speak of his deep desire to help his friend Job, who, who's hurting, who's suffering. And along with his concern is this, this growing concern that Job's on incredibly dangerous ground. You can imagine Eliphaz saying something along the lines of, I know, I know that Job was a good man, but the things that he's starting to say now, he doesn't realise how offensive he's been to us, and more importantly to God. I wish he would just listen. The focus shifts from the first friend, Eliphaz, to Bildad, Job's second friend, who I think probably expresses his frustration a little bit more quickly. This man is so frustrating. He acts like he's the only one who's ever gone through a tough time. If only he would listen to us. Next we hear Zophar, the third and final friend. He's the quiet friend. He doesn't, he doesn't even have a third turn in the cycle of speeches because by the time they get to that point, they realise that Job's not even listening. There's no point in saying anything. I feel so helpless. Job's going too far in what he's saying and he's too blind to see it. It's like he's forgotten how great God is. I wish he would just listen. Now, Obviously, lots more would be said, and I'm guessing that if this thing actually took place, we would feel ourselves pulled in different directions as each of the speakers shared in turn. But, but the producer chooses to close the interviews with Job's final musings. These brothers have hung me out to dry. They can't see past their theories to, to realise that there's actually something really strange going on here. I'm so exhausted. By their painful words, I, I wish that they would just listen. Now, to be clear, I'm not just imagining. This sentiment, I wish they would listen, is explicitly pronounced in slightly different forms, both by Job in chapter 13 and by Eliphaz in chapter 15. But it's even more important to realise that this desire or better demand for others to listen to me is embedded deep within all of the speeches. As I said last week, it's not really a conversation between friends just chatting about things. Each one in turn is trying to have the last word, to make the statement that wins the debate and, and convincingly proves that the other side is wrong. Rather than finding points of agreement with one another, acknowledging the, the truth, however imperfectly expressed, instead they use each other's words and ideas as launching points for attacks. We see this really clearly when friend number two, Bildad, follows Eliphaz in taking up the agreed-upon role of sympathising and comforting. That's what they set out to do back in chapter two. Yet with his opening words, Bildad jettisons any pretense that he's got any gentle comfort coming for Job. Chapter eight, verses one to four. Then Bildad the Shuite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind, Job. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. I don't know how you feel, but my immediate reaction is, ouch. Just moments earlier in chapter 6, verse 26, Job pleads with the three friends, will you treat the words of a, a despairing man as wind? And Bildad picks up on the word wind, not to, to comfort Job and say, hang in there, buddy, but rather to condemn Job, calling Job's speech exactly that, a blustering wind, you're all hot air, Job. With a bluntness that is cringeworthy, Bildad's, Bildad names the elephant in the room as, according to his wisdom, Job, 
the reason that all of this bad stuff has happened to you is that your kids were a bunch of sinners, which drowns out the rest of what he says and could very easily make us think that Bildad and the other two friends from this point on are just flat-out cruel. But however insensitively they say it, I think that throughout the debate the friends are still trying to convince Job that God is willing to forgive. Spun positively, Bildad gives Job the bad news so that he can present the good news. God's willing to forgive you, Job. But knowing as we do that Job's suffering is not the result of sin, chapter 1 and 2 made that very clear, it is not the right answer for Job's situation. Some of you will have heard me speak about my friend Brissert earlier. From, uh, he's a friend of mine from Thailand. Brissert was thrown out of the back of a ute, resulting in his quadriplegia. Uh, I got to know him, and for me, he embodied what I think of as the tragedy of karma. In Thai, they have a saying, do good, get good, do evil, get evil. And absolutely every single person in Brissert's life agrees that evil has happened to him. And therefore, Brissert must have done something evil, whether in this present life or in a previous one. Buddhists look at Brissert's situation and see undeniable evidence of Brissert's fault. But, but as I spent time with Brissert, everything within me screamed out, unfair! Brissert wasn't the drunk driver that caused the accident. And I still think it's so unjust that the uber-wealthy multinational company that he was working for at the time did so little to look after him. The wheelchair he's sitting in is one that we bought for him because the only thing that he'd been given was a metal commode. He was still sitting on that years later. After many months of talking with Brissert, he and his wife eventually agreed to come to church with us. We went around, picked him up, and almost the first thing that was said to him when he arrived at church was, if you just become a Christian, God will make you walk again. <laughs> yeah, I know that God's capable of healing, and it's something that I have repeatedly prayed for Brissert and for others. But immediate healing is not a promise that God guarantees for everybody who becomes a Christian. It doesn't work that way. Well-meaning Christians made promises that God never agreed to keep. And I think that in Job's situation, similar ill-founded conclusions and, and false promises were being made. Now, Job's friends are not Buddhists, and so to understand why they say what they do, we have to go back to the idea that we looked at last week of God's sovereignty, his control of all things. In all of their speeches, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar will point out the terrible things that have happened in Job's life. And from that, draw the conclusion that this can only mean that God is judging you, Job. Look at chapter 11, verse 14, an example of Zophar, the third friend, speaking. Job, speaking to Job, Zophar says, If you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent. In chapter 18, Bildad is a little less direct, but he makes similar accusations intended to imply that Job's physical symptoms and the things that he's lost are clearly God's punishment. It eats away parts of his skin. That's what Job showed physically. His skin was terrible. He, he had these 
this whatever skin condition, death's firstborn devours his limb. He's torn from the security of his tent and marched off to the king of terrors, a poetic way of saying he's lost his house. He's, he's been chucked out onto the garbage tip. The memory of him perishes from the earth. He has no name in the land. The man who is great, nobody knows who he even is. As the cycles go on, these insinuations sharpen into accusations of specific sins that Job himself is alleged to have committed. No longer are they talking about children's sins or or just sins in general, things that Job has done wrong. Ironically, Job's friends accuse Job even more than the accuser does. In chapter 15, Eliphaz accuses Job of words that have been sinful. The things that you've said, Job, you've said evil about God. His attitude has been sinful, expressed as shaking his fist at God. Chapter 22, Eliphaz brings further charges against Job. Job has apparently mistreated poor and widows. Now, whether Job did those or not, there's no evidence for it, but none of these sins are sins that our society would consider horrifying. We would be much quicker to point out something like murder or child abuse. But the friends have even further evidence of Job's sin that, that we often overlook. Job's suffering is presented as worsening through the cycle of debate. In chapters 1 and 2, the Satan himself points out that possessions and, and children in some sense are to some, some degree separated from the individual. The children are not Job. His stuff is not Job. The, the physical suffering that gets inflicted on Job Well, that gets closer to the core of who he is. But with that, we usually think that the torment has reached its pinnacle. This is as bad as it could possibly get. But when we read the details of the debate, what we begin to notice is that through people's reactions to Job's situation, Job's life actually continues to get worse and worse and worse. We already know of his wife's initial reaction, curse God and die, We've heard how the friends are charging him with all manner of sins. But notice some of the other consequences that Job himself speaks about. Job has become a laughingstock, chapter 12. He's lost all his family relationships and and friendships, chapter 19. His servants disregard him. His, His wife, his own wife, finds his breath offensive. He used to be listened to, revered by his community. He was some of the people that respected him. But now he is mocked by the lowest of the low, the outcasts, people that don't matter in their society are saying Job's even less than us. People sing songs that make fun of him and and spit in his face. We thought that Job's life had hit rock bottom back in chapter 2, but the terrible list of devastating losses that were recorded back there were only the start of a downward spiral. The great man has now become the lowest. The honoured man, now a man of shame. Which I think in our individualistic society, we might not think that much of. It's a shame that people look down on him, but Job's his own man. But perhaps a sporting illustration may help us feel why this is actually so important. For those of you who don't know, the man on your screen is Lance Armstrong. Shame on you if you didn't know that. Uh, He's an American cyclist. Uh, that won the Tour de France a record seven times. No one else has even come close. Five's the best that there is. For many, he was the GOAT, greatest of all time. Many who are not even cycling fans know exactly who Lance Armstrong is. 
But thanks to a tenacious reporter and some ex-teammate whistleblowers, Lance's career-long doping and bullying was exposed. He won because he cheated. His glorious reign at the top of world cycling finally came to an end when he confessed to Oprah Winfrey, the, the high priestess of the world, I assume. Lance is now a pariah. Some cycling fans won't actually even mention his name. That's how disgusted they are with him and all his tainted achievements. They've actually taken his seven Tour de France titles off him. He's a person non grata. And that's kind of how people felt about Job. All the good that Job had done was undone when his world came crashing down around him. Only Job was even worse than Lance Armstrong because Job never came clean, even when all of the evidence pointed in exactly the same direction. Job, you're guilty. In Job's society, to lose face, to to be shamed in place of honour is God's punishment. Job himself admits in chapter 19, verse 9, He, God, has stripped me of my honour and removed the crown from my head. And again, in response to this, Zophar suggests that if Job will only repent, then even now God will reverse his shame and re-establish his honour. Chapter 11, verse 14 and 15, Zophar speaking. If you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault you will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. What a lovely promise from Zophar. You could, you'd make an inspirational poster out of it, couldn't you? Well, lovely if you share the friend's conviction of Job's sin. There are arguments about whether Job remains without sin throughout the debate, especially in light of some of the terrible things that he does say about God. Some point to chapter 42 in which Job repents as proof that in the heat of the argument Job did go too far, but, but that's something for another week you'll have to come back for. Already here, there are at least two lessons we can take from what we've read. The first is, while it's a good thing to want to comfort and encourage, to to want to help people move on from terrible losses in their life, notice how easy it is to end up condemning people with our words of encouragement. It was not sin that led to the disasters in Job's life. The suggestion that suffering is punishment comes from their friends, not from God. And so I think it's really worthwhile us considering, are we implying something about others that we don't actually know? As we try to comfort people with God's truth, do we misapply it because we haven't taken the time to really listen, to hear the words behind the words that are being spoken? Like we were encouraged last week, we we need to be extremely careful as we come alongside of people to comfort them in their suffering. But please don't take that to mean that we just listen in silence. Some suggested that friends did really well up until the moment that they opened their mouth. But to be a godly comforter, we cannot simply remain silent or just not and agree with absolutely everything that people say. It is wrong to confirm someone's words who claims that God doesn't care. He does care. 
it's wrong to claim that things are outside of God's control. He is sovereign. To suggest that God is unconcerned or incapable, to, to draw the conclusion that God doesn't answer prayer because he hasn't answered my prayer is simply not true. We must help ourselves and others to see the truth in God's word that, that counters mistaken beliefs like this. But how we actually do that is going to be really tricky. It's going to take time. You're going to have to listen. Sometimes listen a lot longer than you want to listen. And the other thing that this honour turned into shame, I think, helps prepare us for is the incarnation of Jesus. His being God taking on humanity. The words of Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8 are part of a poem that's written about Jesus. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Job went from being the greatest man of the East to a byword. The most exalted one, Jesus, became the most humiliated. The most glorious became the most shamed. While there are immediate applications for us and insights into Jesus, I think that it's really important for us to also recognise that the arguments between friends here is not simply about who is right and who is wrong. If you get to the end of chapter 25 and you're just asking, is Bildad right or is Zophar? Is Eliphaz right or is Job? You're actually asking the wrong question. To understand the book of Job, it is absolutely essential that we get the idea of nuance. To an extent, Job does actually agree with his friends. God is a good sovereign judge. But according to Job, that's not part of the solution. It's the problem. Because God is in control and he's just, then why does God bring about things that are not right, not, not just, not fair? Go back to Job chapter 9. Verses 22 to 24. It's all the same, Job says. That's why I say he, God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, God mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, God blindfolds its judges. If it's not God, then who is it? Some people suggest that Job is rejecting his friend's perspective, but, but you can't read it as simple as that. Job agrees that God does love to, love to bless obedience and, and he will punish disobedience as, as he has done throughout history. And yet Job insists life now is much more complicated, much more mysterious. The times when his friend's logic doesn't apply, the, the vast amount of injustice or tragedies or, or bad people apparently being blessed aren't the exception. They almost seem to be the norm. So in chapter 21, Job continues to speak verses from verse 7. Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not on them. Their bulls never fail to breed. Their, their cows carve and do not miscarry. They send forth their children as a flock. Their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of timbrel and lyre. They make merry to the sound of the pipe. 
They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. Yet they say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? Job says, but their prosperity is not in their own hands, so I stand aloof from the plans of the wicked. Job very rightly sees that the size of someone's house or the car that they drive to be used as a spiritual thermometer capable of measuring godliness is not only inaccurate, very often it gives the opposite conclusion of what's actually true. The man on screen now is Pablo Escobar. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, he was the seventh richest man in the whole world. Blessed by God? No. Colombian drug baron who, who became the richest criminal who's ever lived through producing and selling illicit drugs, feeding off the misery and death of millions. Just because someone is materially wealthy doesn't mean that God has blessed them. In our broken world, it just as likely means that they do dodgy business deals or rip people off. And likewise, when someone is down and out or struggling with health issues, we cannot point to them and say, ah, proof, you're out of relationship with God. Yes, sometimes God will warn people through suffering and pain. C.S. Lewis very famously summarised, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It, pain, is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The problem comes when we take the next step and say that every time somebody is in pain, that means that God is warning or punishing them. If we go that far, then we're making conclusions that we simply don't have the ability or the authority to make. One of the repeated lessons that come out of the debates in Job is our need to withhold judgment. And that applies as we interact with individuals. But it also reveals our limitations to understand what's happening on a much grander scale. The book of Job is at least 3,000 years old. And yet it asks very, very modern questions way back then. How can God sovereignly watch on while wicked people pervert justice? Why does God allow rulers like Pol Pot and Hitler and Mussolini? Why doesn't he intervene now to stop the Tatmadaw in Myanmar? Putin's attacks that just continue in Ukraine day after day. Why did he allow our church, the Australian church, to steal a generation of Indigenous Australians? Why did he allow church leaders to sexually abuse innocent kids all over the world? The tragic bus crash in Victoria this week that injured all of those kids. You say that God is just, that he's good, he's in control of all things, but as you can plainly see, this world is far from just or good. Job himself is terrified by these words spilling out of his mouth and, and even more so the implications of these observations about God. Have a look at chapter 13, verse 14, Job speaking. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and, and take my life in my hands by all these words that I say about God? Well, Because the proof is everywhere and he can't deny it. 
This life is filled with so much sadness, so many bad things, so many things that are unfair, that it unavoidably poses the question, does a good God really control everything? Now the friends jump in at this point and try to explain what they see as exceptions, attempting to to soften the impact of the evidence that Job gives. They acknowledge that people sometimes do get away with wickedness, but it's only for a short time. Chapter 20, again, is Zophar, the third friend, speaking. Surely, Job, you know how it has been from of old, ever since mankind was placed on the earth, that the mirth of the wicked is brief. The joy of the godless lasts but a moment. Though the pride of the godless person reaches to the heavens and his head touches the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? Like a dream, he flies away, no more to be found, banished like a vision of the night. According to the friends, God's justice is not always immediate, which means that if bad things haven't yet happened to bad people, it's only because God's patient and and he's waiting, giving them time to repent. But watch out. If they refuse to repent, it's just a matter of time until judgment will fall. Now, what's what's even more important for Job's situation is that if bad has already happened, then it's crystal clear that God is punishing the one who is suffering. Like a minor tweak of the tie saying that the friends believe that life can be summarised very simply. Obey God, get blessed. Disobey God, get punished. And recognise there is some truth in what they say. But despite the the element of truth, I hope that you are very uncomfortable with how they say it. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? What are we supposed to conclude as we hear the last of the responses of Job's friends? Chapter 25 uh, is Bildad's last speech. It's actually the very last time that we will ever hear any of the friends speak. And notice how short it is. As I said before, I think that by this point they've all given up. Zophar won't even have a third speech. Listen to Bildad. Bildad the Shuite replied, Dominion and awe belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of heaven. Can his forces be numbered? On whom does his light not rise? How then can a mortal be righteous before God? How can one born of a woman be pure? If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less a mortal who is but a maggot? A human being who is only a worm. Ah, what great theology, hey? (laughs) I I think that by this stage in the book, we are supposed to be really, really uncomfortable with what the friends are saying and and starting to side with Job, but, but at the same time thinking, yeah, but he says some stuff that I'm really not comfortable with. And and this is where the subtle shift becomes a necessary step to resolving the tension, this nuance that Job has pointed out. Because humans are not fully capable of understanding why life is so unjust, Job says, I'm going to take my case before God for him to decide it. I need him to give me the answer because I just don't get it. This is a trend that happens more and more the, the further you go into the three cycles. The miscommunication and, and repeated accusations, from one perspective, 
push Job down. It's a really negative thing. They, they cause him incredible pain and he acknowledges that. But at the same time, they also actually push Job in a, in a different positive direction. His responses and his questions, rather than being directed to his friends asking them for advice, get directed to God. Chapter 13, verses 20 to 24, uh, is Job continuing a speech to God speaking. Only grant me these two things, God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offence and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Job knows that as he's making that speech that Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar are all listening. But he directs his words not to them, but to God himself. Job believes that only a conversation with God can give Job the opportunity to actually convince God that Job hasn't done anything deserving of all this terrible treatment he's receiving. Job clearly, in this statement, believes that he knows better than his friends what is going on, but he admits that he remains bamboozled as to why God is doing what he's doing. And so God is the only one who can actually resolve this tension, this confusion. And again, that means I think there's lots of lessons, really important lessons for us here. Firstly, it's a great reminder that our friends, good as they are, are still only human. People will let you down, believe it or not. Even your pastors won't always provide what you expect or need or should receive. It is a sad reality of life, but one, if you haven't already experienced, get ready to experience it. And Job points us in the right direction in light of that reality. The Satan predicts that when things turn from good to bad, Job's going to curse God to his face. But as Job is submerged into the depths of despair, he doesn't turn away from God, he turns even more to God. Even at the darkest time in his life, Job shows us that it's right to keep on trusting God as everyone else lets him down. He turns to the only one who will never let us down. And while Job does that with some very questionable words thrown in, like last week, we again see that the Lord Jesus does this faultlessly. Part of Job's role, the reason that we've got this book in the Bible, is that it prepares us for someone even more exalted than Job was, one who will become even lower than the lowest, one deserving of eternal glory who is mocked and has people spit in his face literally, one who is assumed to be a sinner, but who takes the sin of those willing to acknowledge that they can't deal by themselves with their own sin. Jesus is punished not for his own sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Job is in many ways a very dark book and deeply, deeply troubling. Uh, It's not an easy read. It's not a happy read. And yet it shines so much light on our reality, a complicated and often very painful reality that Jesus chose to enter into. Firstly, to be with us in the midst of the pain and the mess. And finally, he promises us, And he promises us one day 
to forever rescue us from it. I'm going to pray for us and then the team's going to come and sing an item. It reflects on words taken out of this debate. And I think that in the end it pushes us in the same direction that Job goes, to trust in God even when we can't understand what he's doing. Job chapter 13, uh, verses 12 to 19, now that we know the context, the, the kind of thing that's going on between the friends, is actually a bold declaration by Job. May it be our declaration too. Job 13, verses 12 to 19. Job speaking to his friends. Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defences are defences of clay. Keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he, God, slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless person would dare come before him. Listen carefully to what I say. Let my words ring in your ears. Now that I've prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you prepared us to be able to understand what you did by having a book that was written down 3,000 plus years before you even uh, came and was a man on the earth. Lord, we learned so much from the book of Job about you. We learn so much about people and suffering. We learn about how we're supposed to actually empathize with people and, and comfort them wisely. And yet ultimately it prepares us most clearly for you, someone who does that perfectly, who's not just dumped into terrible things but chooses to leave glory and take on suffering. Though you never deserved it, you'd never done anything even remotely going close to deserving the pain that you chose to not only enter into that but to take on all of our pain, all of our shame, all of our dishonour and you took it to the cross and nailed it there. You died in our place so that we wouldn't have to deal with our shame because you've already dealt with it completely. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for what we've done. Help us to keep trusting in you even in the times when we can't understand. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.